Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, now available at all your finest retailers to show you just how to simplify your complicated life. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, once again, we've reached another divisor of 12. This is episode 120, and you guys know what that means. Every 12 episodes, it's all Q&A. But of course, we also have a little bit of feedback to get through, so don't worry. It's not just going to be all questions and answers, but it's mostly going to be questions and answers. <laughs> yeah, really, and hopefully uh, we'll have some decent answers for you. But before we get started on anything, let's take a listen to these messages from the people who make our show possible. This episode is brought to you by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a hub for homebrewers since 1978. Visit homebrewersassociation.org for recipes, brewing tips, and community. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome back, everybody, and Drew has a couple announcements for today. Well, in our first announcements, we know it's been a couple of weeks since episodes. Uh, we're sorry. Our bad. We're kind of busy. But the last episode that we had out there is actually the Brew Files, where I talk with Dan Pixley of Milk the Funk. Go figure out just how the funky group got started and what sort of goodness you can find from them. And really, I think the very interesting and very large impact that they're having on both homebrewing and on craft brewing. Yeah, man, uh, those guys have uh, really, really come on strong, and there are a lot of people who really dig their info. Yeah, they are now a force for science. And <laughs> Sorry, I just could not resist. Yeah. Um, and don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pudging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... Still Undecided! We're really looking for a charity that can help food service workers who have been laid off uh, during this uh, terrible crisis that we're having right now. So we're asking you guys for suggestions. We would like something kind of like on a national scale uh, so that uh, it, it doesn't just stay regional and that everybody can feel good about contributing. So if you know of a uh, of a fund that is going to relief for food service, or brewery workers or anything like that, please write into podcast at experimentalbrew.com and let us know so that we can give them some bucks to help them out. Absolutely. Always good to make sure that we support charity during this time. And speaking of things that we're doing during this time, 
it's time for your feedback. feedback. That's right. We got some feedback, a couple pieces. Uh, first one came from Chris Saunders of Escarpment Labs. You'll remember Chris has been on the show before at last uh, Homebrew Con. He talking about making low or no alcohol beer. And he, in the last main show, we had talked about the fact that they had their um, their whole series of EscarpCon sessions that were going up on YouTube. And at the time, it didn't look like everything was there. But Chris Saunders wrote in and he said, uh, I was listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast this morning, and you mentioned that you weren't sure if all the EscarpCon sessions were up. Maybe it was when I was listening, or perhaps it was recorded earlier. But all of our sessions are now up on YouTube. So you can go to YouTube, you go search for Escarpment Labs, Escarpment, like the geological feature, and you'll be able to find their channel where they have a whole bevy of different East topics from north of the border. So go watch it. Yeah, these guys really know their stuff, and uh, I'm sure you can kill a whole bunch of hours watching them. We also uh, got several emails uh, about my comments about stress drinking, and people were talking about how they were going through the same thing and how they've dealt with it. Uh, I I think I'm doing a little bit better myself. Uh, I'm I'm after I had a, a seven beer day the other day. It was like, oh man, no no no, don't do that anymore. And uh, so I've been you know I've been breaking into the carbonated water and stuff like that. And a lot of people are saying you know they try and take days off each week from drinking, uh, three to five days off. Uh, they're making a lot of lower alcohol beers and stuff like that. And, you know, a lot of people are doing it for their health also, uh, weight loss reasons. I think the main thing that we tried to talk about before was just be aware if you're doing this and take it seriously if you think you need to. Like we said, we're not judging anyone for it. You get to judge yourself. Uh, so, uh, Please. I was going to say, I have enough judgment for, you know, at least three Catholic priests. <laughs> yeah, right, man. Uh, but, you know, take a look at your own habits and uh, make sure that you're doing the right thing. And uh, one way to deal with it is Drew's Aqua Fresca. Yeah. So, obviously, I live here in Southern California where, you know, we have lots of different exposure, lots of different Latin cuisines and Latin snacks and all that sort of stuff. And, of course, the big one is that you will see Agua Frescas everywhere. I mean, they're literally basically fruited waters, right, or fresh waters. And a very, very popular one, which, you know, given, given the trends in the brewing world the last couple of years, should be easy for every brewer to make, is um, a hibiscus uh, Agua Fresca, right? And it's just essentially a hibiscus tea that you sweeten and you maybe you add some lemon or, or uh, some other fruit flavors to it and... You do that, and it's super easy to make, right? And now, if you actually have the proper uh, hibiscus aquafresca, it's very, very sweet. And I don't like very sweet drinks. So I actually just the other day decided I would make myself some hibiscus tea, and then I went and sweetened it up with a little bit of like low-calorie sweetener, like I think like a stevia or something like that, but just a little bit. You know, uh, the problem is you need some because the hibiscus is so sour, right? it's so acidic-tasting. And then I put it into a couple two-liter bottles and put some carbonated caps on those and shook them up and made carbonated hibiscus soda. And it took me 10 minutes, 20, if, if you count the steeping time for the tea. 
So with that, and I had a I had a couple of liters of something that was light, refreshing, and very summery to drink. And by the way, it also mixes very well with uh, both uh, gin, rum, and vodka. <laughs> the important considerations. <laughs> but we were we were talking about uh, not drinking. Remember? Yes, I know. Uh, but I always have a keg of carbonated water in the beer fridge, and mm. uh, that, and uh, a little lime, and I am good, man. I'm just cruising. It, it, it's it's a great thing to do uh, to take a break from beer, you know. Uh, yeah. And I mean, even even if it's just something, I mean, even just having it on hand is good for. You know, sort of slowing down that impulse to just reach for, oh, my glass is empty. I'll I'll fill it up with some more beer. Well, you know what? I was going to say that I have discovered that for me, I kind of like have gotten into the habit of having a glass of something sitting next to me when I'm sitting on the couch watching TV. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to tell you the truth, it... it Carbonated water works almost as well as as beer for that purpose, you know, when you're just kind of drinking something, picking up a glass and sipping something out of habit. So, you know, something else to keep in in mind. Yep. And like I said, uh, you know, if you don't want to dedicate a whole keg to it, then you can always just use like a recycle a two liter bottle and you can carbonate in those things because guess what? It's kind of what they're there for. (laughs) That's right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here to get ourselves mentally prepared to answer questions. And when we come back, we will be going into questions about hops. So please stick around. Lye's new Wit & Weinson private collection features three wheat beer strains ideal for summer brewing. 3191 Berliner Weiss blend is extremely versatile and adds tartness with a little lactobacillus. The highly flocculent 3333 German wheat produces clear, bright beers without extra effort. And 3942 Belgian wheat returns with its unique apple, bubblegum, and plum-like aromas, perfect for complementing your malt and hops in a Belgian IPA. You'll also love this collection for its accommodating temperature range during the hotter months. These Y-Yeast Originals are available at your local homebrew shop from now through the end of September. Find out more at yeastlab.com. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of Historical Brewing Techniques, The Lost Art of Farmhouse Brewing. Purchase your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques at BrewersPublications.com. Welcome back, and it's time for us to start digging into your questions, and you guys sent us a fair number, so thank you. Let's get this thing moving, and we're going to start in the category of the world of hops. We've got a couple of hop questions here, and the first one is for you, Denny. It's from Johnny Barton in Missouri, who actually sent us a text at 626-765-1-ALE. All right, and he remembered to tell us his name, too. Thanks, Johnny. On a previous episode, Denny mentioned cold dry hopping. Can you go into detail into your technique 
And specifically, do you combine the cold dry hopping step with cold crashing? I do them separately, actually. I cold crash to 35, and because I'm using a conical, then I drop the yeast, and then I drop in the dry hops for 48 hours. Uh, this is something that I, I continue to do. I make a lot of beers that are dry hopped. Uh, pale ales and IPAs are pretty much the staple around here. So I've been finding this works really, really well. Uh, I'm having the uh, hop aroma and especially hop flavor last far longer than I have before. Uh, one reason I think is that one of the, the things that was mentioned in the, uh, the BSG papers that, uh, I got this original idea from was that the longer you dry hop, the more time the hops have to reabsorb the oils that they've released, which I found very interesting. The paper also mentioned, uh, that this was especially good for, uh, linalool. And so I'm going to start paying attention to the linalool content of the hops that I'm dry hopping with to see if that has an effect on the technique, like if it's more effective with a high linalool content, less effective with a lower content. Uh, at this point, though, I would have to say that it's been pretty much universally stunning for me. Well, there you go. And, uh, yeah, I think it will be interesting. This plays into the the next question that we got uh, from Hayden Charter, who was with Quaff, and he emailed us uh, from San Diego because we had just given a talk to Quaff. Yeah. And uh, he didn't get a chance to ask his question at the time. So he says, uh, I'm hoping that he can go more in-depth on the results of his cold temperature dry hopping. I think you've done some of that. Uh, has Denny done a regular temp dry hop since his initial cold temp dry hop to notice a significant impact that has made him stick with the cold dry hopping? So I think the way to read that is, so have you gone back and done it warm again, buddy? No, I haven't because this is obviously so much better than any results that I was getting before that uh, I don't want to go back to the less effective way. And I know that if this was somebody else writing in, I would say, oh, no, you need to do both and do a blind triangle test and stuff. But I'm not saying that here. Uh, this is this is obviously better. Kind of kind of like how if you uh, make a beer and then make another version of it with dark malt, you don't necessarily need to do a triangle test because you know that the one has dark malt in it. And then the follow-up part to that question was, Andrew, have you also begun cold temp dry hopping? If not, what are your thoughts on the process? And uh, truthfully, I have. I've done it twice now. So you have to remember. In terms of things that I make, I don't tend to make as many IPAs and pale ales as Denny does. Uh, you know, I tend to be a little bit more Belgian-y. And I've also been making a lot of cream ale recently. I don't know. It might be because it's like 100 degrees out. <laughs> Could be, huh? Um, and But in the two beers that I've done, the cold temp dry hopping on, I think I've got really good results. I am going to send Denny some of the Mitten Winds IPA that I've talked about on another show. Uh, mostly because I'm very intrigued by the how candy-esque these uh, Chinook hops came off. So I want to get his opinion on that. So, so far, I, the two that I've tried in it, I've actually really liked it. I will also let you in on a dirty secret. I haven't done for, unless I'm doing an IPA, I don't tend to do a lot of dry hopping anyway. So uh, this is getting me back into doing dry hopping. You know, isn't Grisette dry hopped? Uh, <laughs> depends on who you read. <laughs> yeah, right. It depends on if you want to or not. I was just thinking it might be an interesting thing to try with that. It would. Um, yeah, Grisette is an interesting case because that falls right into that line about uh, 
saisons. Uh, although the, interestingly, there's more there's more written about Grisette from around the time, and people will remember that we just did a. Well, I say we just did, but a while ago we did a uh, a whole Brew Files episode about Grisette. So you should go listen to that if you want to dig into the style. It's a lot of fun. You know, and speaking of sending people beers, I have uh, an ale song Grisette that I'm intending to send you in the next shipment that I put down there too, man. Uh, I, th- I think you're going to like it. Oh, and one other thing I wanted to mention in uh, respect to cold, dry hopping is uh, my wife's birthday is coming up here in a few days, so I just whipped out another batch of rye IPA in honor of it, and I cold, dry hopped with uh, Cryo Columbus, and I got to tell you, Wow. <laughs> well, and then that plays into our next email also about cryo. Um, and that comes from Travis Lewis up in Portland. So one of your neighbors there who emailed yeah. us to say, I'm wondering if either of you have had the experience of beers not clearing up while using cryo hops. This is my third time using cryo hops as part of my hop bill. And each time I haven't been able to achieve the clarity I normally expect to achieve. I use gelatin with no success. A thought I've had is that the age of the cryo hops might be playing a role as these are leftover from Humbukan in Portland. Any pointers? Wow. Um, yeah, I can't imagine that it's the cryo hops, because I certainly haven't had any trouble getting beers to clear when I use them, uh, even without gelatin, just normal cold crashing. Uh, I can't imagine how the, the age could make a difference. Can you? I'm trying to think. So age's primary impact is going to be oxidizing the oils, I mean, normally, if people are telling me that they're seeing a hop haze, I'm thinking that's from the polyphenols, which, of course, are not there as much in the cryos. So, well, and, I mean, not to, not to mention the fact that if these were kept in a, in a sealed pack in the fridge or freezer, then there should have been very, very little deterioration at all. And the other thing that doesn't really work for me is that because the cryo hops have so much vegetal matter uh removed that I would think that that might be what would cause the clarity problem, uh, not the fact that it was removing, but if it was there. So I, if anything, I would expect them to clear better, but that's just a wild-ass guess. Yeah, uh, and the only other thing I think of is, I mean, so when cryo hops do dissolve, I mean, they, they could get powdery. So I'm wondering, particularly if these are the older versions of the, the cryo hops, you know, like some of those first first attempts, uh, at doing the pelletization, they might. Yeah, you, you know, and he doesn't say if it's pellets or the powder. I, I don't think that they were still making powder when they were handing them out at uh, Homebrew Con, but maybe they were, and well, maybe it, that's it. But I, I still haven't had any problems using that. Yeah, well, but I mean, I think the the other thing is, I mean, I remember those those early pellets still had a tendency to sort of um, turn to dust. Uh, it, I mean, it took a while to dial in the process, naturally. And so I'm wondering if, if they're older cryo hops, if there's not just also the fact that the material breaks down into something more powdery that stays in suspension. Again, though, they came from the conference in Portland, which was only a couple of years ago. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they wouldn't I, – I doubt that they would have come from, you know, a, a really old production run. But, again, I, I really don't know. I guess what we'll have to do is get a hold of some people at Yakma Chief and uh, see if they have anything to say about it. Maybe maybe I'll shoot Brian Pierce an email. There you go. That would be a nice thing to do. Uh, every time I think of Brian Pierce, I think about those wonderful tacos we had. Mm, I, I keep thinking about standing in the middle of a dry, dusty hop field with a can of beer in my hand. 
<laughs> yeah, that was pretty good, too. <laughs> okay, well, now that we've talked about hops, we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll be talking about ingredients and how you use them and maybe how you don't use them. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for sticking around, and be sure to let our sponsors know where you heard about them. So, uh, we're getting into the ingredient category, and the first question comes from Christian Shank in Nebraska, and it's for both of us. Christian says, I've been a brewer for about four years now, and given how much extra time I seem to have during the quarantine period, I've been thinking about improving my recipes. So to that end, my goal this summer is to try to make better IPAs and Cezanne than I currently am. Boy, now why would he think of us for those? Hmm. This then is a recipe question for both of you. And here's Drew's section. What are your top three recommendations for making a darn good Cezanne? So, all right. So yeast, hops, grain combo, temperature, et cetera. Um, I'm going to say my, my top three recommendations are all over there in my article on Cezanne's on the Maltose Falcons. But for me, a good Pilsner malt, uh, a good non-French Cezanne strain. Um, if I never have another Cezanne made with French Cezanne strain, it will be too soon. Uh, so, like, for instance, for me, one of my favorite things to do is to take both the Y yeast and the White Labs Belgian Cezanne 1, you know, their, their primary strain, which they're both DuPont, and I'll pitch those together, and that actually can make some for very interesting things. Uh, temps, start cool, so 63, and let it run up, and with the DuPonts in particular, uh, doing an open fermentation, let it ride. Let it go up into the 80s, into the 90s if it gets there. Uh, and I think if you just do those couple things, you got a good Saison on your hands. I think that uh, one of the things you said there that way too many people who brew Saisons aren't aware of uh, because of the the myths out there is to start the fermentation cool. People, I see people going, well, you know what? It's 90 degrees here, so I'm going to make a Saison. <laughs> it's like, you know, you may find that 90 degrees useful during or towards the end of fermentation, but you certainly don't want it that hot at the beginning. Right, absolutely. And because, uh, I mean, remember, in the early phases of uh, post pitch, you know, like when the yeast is doing all of its reproduction and starting to do the ferment, that's also when you can generate a lot of the fusel alcohols that, that yeast can do. And 
if there's anything in this world that I hate, it's fusels. And so, yeah. to me, particularly with Belgians, I always like to start them cool and then let them run. Yep, I agree. I do the same thing with triples and everything else. So, uh, Okay, my part of the question was, what are your top three recommendations for making a darn good West Coast IPA? Okay, uh, I would say the number one recommendation is don't be afraid of crystal malt. Somehow, uh, in the last few years, people have gotten this real thing about not u- not using crystal malt, uh, you know, and that is just not the way to go if you want to make a West Coast IPA. You need it for flavor, but you need to use the appropriate crystal in the appropriate amounts. For instance, uh, I recently made what I'm calling a summer pale ale. I wanted something to be like light and relatively low alcohol and uh, be not have too much body so that it was easy to drink, but then have a tremendous late hop character to it. So I used uh, half a pound of Crystal 20 along with, say, maybe about 10 pounds, I don't have the recipe here in front of me, uh, of a good pale malt. Uh, kept the gravity down around 1052-ish. Uh, and, and that worked really well. But, you know, I would say look at Crystal 20, look at Crystal 40, look at Crystal 60. The traditional recipe for a West Coast IPA uh, taken from like Sierra Nevada and a number of other brewers was to make about 10% of your grain bill Crystal 60. And that is still a darn good way to go for a straight-ahead West Coast IPA, something like Sierra Nevada's Celebration or something. The other thing is you need to have a firm bitterness. You don't need to have it be so bitter it slaps you in your face, but you don't want it to be a a sweet, wimpy beer either. Uh, so remember that if you're putting crystal malt in there, you need to have enough bitterness in there to balance it out. And the other thing that I alluded to a minute ago is you want to have just enough body to it to make it interesting so that it's not like water, but you want to keep it on the drinkable side also. Uh, mash in the, say, low 150s. I, I do someplace between 150, 153 usually. Keep the grain bill relatively simple. Uh, if you don't want to use crystal, you could throw in a, a bit of Munich or something like that. You need a little something for character, and I find that crystal is what my palate wants to have. So, after that long tirade, here we go. Three things. Don't be afraid of crystal malt. Use an appropriate one in an appropriate amount. Get a firm bitterness in the beer, and you want just enough body, but keep it drinkable. And there you have it. How to make an IPA. <laughs> well, hopefully, Christian, uh, those those things will give you something to play around with, with both your IPAs and your saisons, and uh, see what you think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I mean, again, here's the thing. Even if you make an IPA that isn't perfect or a saison that isn't perfect, you still made beer. Yeah, that's right, man. You know, it's it, hard to make something that's going to be totally undrinkable, but I've done it. Okay, so uh, we'll let Drew take this next one, and it comes from Jeff Fenton in Michigan via email. Jeff says, I brewed an amber ale, and I want to add honey for flavor and aroma. I do not want it to be fermented into glorious booze. I've heard I can pasteurize the honey, then dilute it to my final gravity, then add to beer before kegging. 
Any other recommendations? Sorbistat. <laughs> Sorbistat? Yeah, no, seriously. Use potassium sorbate here. Uh, I'm not sure what you're going to gain by pasteurizing the honey and diluting it, except for, obviously, you know, thinning out the character and also uh, dropping the ABV on your beer. If what you really want to do is add honey for flavor and aroma, then you, what you need to do is you need to make sure that the yeast that's sitting there in your beer isn't going to reactivate in the presence of that sugar and start doing its thing. So in this particular case, you're not going to, you're not, I don't think you're going to gain anything by pasteurizing the honey because honey is already fairly antimicrobial to begin with. What you could do or what I would do is after the beer is done fermenting, and since you don't need natural carbonation, you can get away with this. After the beer is done fermenting, you crash out, you let it clear, all that sort of good stuff, and you get into the keg. When you go to add it in the keg, add potassium sorbate, sometimes called sorbostat, sorbostat K, got a couple different names. What it is, it's it's a yeast inhibitor, right? So what it does is it prevents yeast from restarting a fermentation. So it won't stop an active fermentation, but will stop a, it will stop a new one from starting. So mix in the appropriate amount of sorbostat. I always have to look at the jar in order to remember what it is. Make sure everything is scrupulously clean when you do this and sanitized. And then add the honey to the beer and give it a shake. And with the sorbostat, it should make it so that it doesn't actually re-ferment. Right. And one thing that I want to, again, point out here that uh, people seem to forget is that even in a keg in the fridge, the yeast will keep slowly working if it's got anything to work on. Just because you have that beer cold doesn't mean that the yeast isn't going to keep fermenting uh, to some degree. So, you know... Like like uh, Jeff said here, if he uh, added the honey and didn't want to do anything, then uh, then he would get that honey eventually fermented out, even though the beer was kegged and in the fridge. So uh, the next question comes from Mike Humphreys of Houston via email, and it's about Saison. So this one goes to Drew, and he says, I have a wheat intolerance allergy. How would you substitute wheat, both raw and malted, in a recipe? Here are a couple examples. And he gives one uh, of the Petit Prince uh, from Jester King, which is 85% Pilsner, 15% malted wheat. And Drew's Template Saison, which is 85% Pilsner, 5% raw wheat, and some sugar thrown in. So I know what I do. What do you think, Drew? Oats. Yeah? Oats. Yeah. No, okay. I, I think... I mean, here's the thing. You've got two choices. One of which is to either just go straight Pilsner, you know, and substitute, you know, uh, the uh, more malton for the wheat, uh, which is fine. I think that works. But if you still want to keep an adjunct in there, I would actually go with oats. I think oats are actually uh, pretty good. And of course, everybody knows I like oat malt anyway. So I've done plenty of saisons with uh, oats. I mean, I don't know how bad the wheat intolerance slash allergy is and whether or not that means that you would also be impacted by, say, spelt or uh, triticale, uh, but those would be things to look at. And also, if you want something kind of spicy, then you would go, I, th I think you could also go with rye, assuming, again, that doesn't trigger the intolerance. But, you know, those are going to change the character of the beer quite a bit over wheat, which is, mm -hmm. let's you know, is going to be thin and... You know, generally not add a whole lot of flavor to it. So I was thinking, I mean, number one, I think the first thing to do would just be leave it out, you know, especially in your templates is on with 5% wheat there. Mm -hmm. That's not going to make a huge difference. But what do you think about maybe going with corn or rice instead? 
My problem is, I think, with uh, if you're going to do that, I would say rice over corn. Yeah, I agree. Uh, because rice to me has less of a uh, less of an aftertaste, less uh, of a corny flavor. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, look, I make I make cream ales. I can taste no, corn. No, no, no. Yeah, no. I I'm, I was not dissing corn by any means. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think if you wanted to go corn or rice, I would I would go rice uh, as opposed to corn, just because I think it will give a crisper back end. The other thing I always get is, for whatever reason, with rice, I will always, and I know this is just a childhood flavor association. Every time I have a beer with rice in it, the the thing I always taste in the finish is the old uh, rice paper wrapped candy that uh, that used to be very popular that you get like in Chinatown or something like that. I just remember that as a kid because my mom would go to Chinatown to go make a big Chinese American feast, and she would always bring me back a little box of that candy. <laughs> I've, very it, interesting, man. I've never gotten that out of rice at all, so it must just I, be your childhood. Yeah, it's a, a childhood memory uh, trigger. So there yeah, we go. Right, right. All so right. anyway, there you go, Mike. There's a few suggestions for you. Uh, take your pick. Uh, let us know what you decide on if you give them a try and how it works out for you. And I'll keep preaching for multi votes. All right. Our, right. our next question comes from uh, Eli Swanson in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, who emailed us to say, I'm an all-grain brewer who's been focused on hoppy beers, lagers, and English styles as I've been honing my craft the last six years. As my tastes have changed, I've been drawn to saisons and Belgian styles over the last year. I would like to make a double quad Belgian dark strong and really want the plum and stone fruit flavors to be centered stage. While I'm willing to make multiple batches to learn how to develop these flavors, I am hopeful that you would please provide some guidance to accelerate my learning curve. What are your recommendations to develop these flavors in this style? Vincenzo. Well, you know what, man? Uh, this is right up my alley because those are exactly the kind of flavors that I like in my darker Belgians. And my three tips for doing that is use Y yeast 1762. It's the Rochefort yeast and goes a long way towards getting you started on those flavors. Use candy syrup, not candy sugar. I'll say it again. Candy syrup, not candy sugar. Uh, something like a, a D180 would be just perfect and really, really bumps up that kind of uh, plum flavor. And uh, just a little bit of special B in a dark Belgian helps. Uh, you know, maybe, I would say maybe 5% of your grist tops. But uh, I, I think between the the Y1762, the D180 candy syrup, and the Special B, that will get you started on your quest to develop that kind of beer. Uh, you, anything else that I haven't thought about? Well, I was going to say, one, I think those Belgian candy syrups did a lot to help people simplify how to get there. So I heartily recommend uh, the same thing. The other thing I will also tell you, I don't know if it's available right now. But the other one that I've always had in terms of yeast choices that will push a very strong plum and prune type uh, character is what Y-Yeast calls their Canadian-Belgian strain. And I know it's a private stock thing, so it's not always available. But it's basically, it's the Unibrew strain. And if the, you the have... 38, 3864, I believe, is the number. There you go. But the, it's, it's the Unibrew strain, and it is a yeast that screams plums to me. And so if you if you can get your hands on it, I think it's a great choice as well. If you can't get your hands on it, but you can get your hands on Unibrew, 
well, their beers are bottled on, on yeast. I can't guarantee that it's the same one, but it's worth a shot. You know, it's funny. I've always thought of that yeast to have more of like an Arden kind of uh, quality to it. But I don't. I can't remember if I've ever used it to make anything but a light beer. So maybe uh, maybe I'll give that a shot the next time. Yeah, well, I mean, like think like um, a Terrible, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Or Toy Pistol. I mean, those are I mean, those are the darker beers, and yeah, they just scream plums to me. Huh. I, I don't get as much out of that for them as I do, like out of a Rochefort or something mm-hmm. like that. But uh, whatever. There's there's some suggestions for you, Eli. So give them a shot, see what happens. And our last ingredient question comes from Victor from Collegeville, Pennsylvania, who actually left us a voicemail to say, uh, "This past Christmas, my wife got me a Sierra Nevada Celebration Clone recipe, and while I love that beer." I'm not quite sure I want to have that on tap for the spring. Uh, so I wanted to give you the recipe, what came with it, and see if you might be able to come up with something else I could do with it rather than a celebration clone. So it comes with 12 pounds of two-row malt, a pound of Crystal 60, two-thirds of a pound of Carafa 1 Special, which is the Dehus stuff, uh, one ounce of Chinook hops, four ounces of Cascade, four ounces of Centennial, USO 5 yeast, and it's supposed to come out to about 6.5% alcohol. I always have on hand some UK Archer pellet hops, some green bullet hops, I have Nottingham ale yeast, some Mutton's ale yeast, and some 3470 yeast. So I know what Denny's going to say, just make the celebration, because it's a great beer. And I agree, but I'm looking for something that's a little more lower on the alcohol content side. If you have any ideas, I'd love to hear them. Thank you very much. Okay, Victor, first off, there's something a bit hinky here, because a celebration recipe should not have two-thirds of a pound of Carafa in it. Uh, there, there is no dark malt in celebration. It is nothing but pale malt and crystal. So, you know, I really don't understand, but... So, number one, if you use the Carafa, you don't have to worry because it won't be anything at all like uh, <laughs> Celebration. If you wanted to go in a completely different way, man, uh, you know, th- there are just tons of, of ways you could go there. I think that what I would probably do is uh, use the pale malt. Uh, and uh, let me see. You've got 12 pounds of it. I would use 10 pounds of the pale malt. Uh, I would use the 3470. I would uh, bitter with some Chinook. And I, let's, let's say you're shooting for an OG like in the 1050, 1052 range. Uh, I would bitter with Chinook until you get maybe about say 30, 35 IBUs. I would throw in the cascades at uh, flame out, dry hop with the centennial and uh, ferment with the 3470. So that would kind of give you a light, low alcohol beer that should be pretty easy drinking for the warm weather. So uh, what's, what's your uh, take on this? Schwartz beer. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good thing too. Uh you know, you could yeah. uh, you could just bitter it and then not use any more hops after that. Toss yep. in the Carafa, some 3470, make Schwartz beer. Yep. That's what. Yeah, I would say yeah, you use like 8 or 9 pounds of the the two row and then use the Carafa in there and you'll get a nice dark lower gravity beer. And then yeah, just use use yeah, I wouldn't use the Chinooks as, as the bittering hops, but I mean like Use maybe the, some of the Centennial. It doesn't have to be very much. I'm going to guess just back the envelope, back of the head, like an ounce. 
uh, use yeah, this. Well, you know, I, I would say shoot for maybe something like what in the twenty-five IBU range. Yeah, I think something like that. You know, so twenty-ish, no more than thirty. Don't don't go uh, super crazy with it. But yeah, and then ferment it with the thirty-four seventy, and you could do that. And uh, next thing you know, you'll have you'll have a beer that is both dark but also very, very light and very drinkable. Yeah, uh, I think that that's a great idea, too. So there you go. There's a couple ways you can go with it, Victor. Uh, let us know what you decide on and how it turned out. Yeah, by the way, I'm glad I'm not the only one who was confused about the carafe in there. <laughs> no, man, I saw that and I went, a celebration clone? <laughs> not no no way no way that just cannot be with the carafa in there especially because i was at beer camp uh, one year at sierra nevada when they were making celebration and i know for a fact that there's nothing in it but uh, pale malt and crystal break time break time we're going to take a quick break here and when we come back we're going to be talking about the mash so stick around Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. Welcome back, everybody, and we are getting into the mash now. The first question comes from Justin Moyes on Facebook, and Justin says, Hey, Drew, how's it going? I was going to give a shot at one of the short brews you guys have been talking about. If I do a 30-minute mash, is there a certain OG I should look for after the mash, or maybe a calculator that can help me out? Or would you have an example, maybe, say I'm going to try to make an IPA around 6%? Uh so yeah, Justin asked me this, and my response to him was, "Yes, the thing that you look for is exactly what you'd look for in a sixty-minute mash. So whatever your your mash gravity is supposed to be at the end of your mash, you know, with all the runnings and everything else, it's no different. I mean, you guys have to remember that, particularly at our scale, the starch and the enzymes will convert relatively quickly, and they'll actually leach into the water relatively quickly. So, in my experience, I'm not looking for anything different." in terms of the timing, or in terms of what I expect the gravities to be. Yeah, you know, and I haven't actually checked it. I would think that it, it might be possible to be a bit less, but again, that's just a total guess. But uh, it, it really shouldn't be much, if any, different from doing a 60-minute mash. So just apply everything you know about 60-minute mashes to a 30-minute mash and go for it. Yep, easy peasy. Only thing that changes is the clock. <laughs> that's right. All right, and our next question comes from uh, Michael Asfalk of Pennsylvania, who emailed us to say, I was wondering about step mashes. Are they still viable as a style method for certain beers, such as a Trappist and Belgians? I use a 10-gallon cooler as a mash tun, 
and typically do brew in a bag out of my 8-gallon brew pot. These types of mashes are a little tough to achieve with this method. But either way, are step mashes still necessary? Uh, necessary? Uh, no, I would say that they are definitely not necessary. Uh, this is something that I have been really testing a lot lately because uh, with the grandfather, it is so easy to do a step mash. So I... Uh, recently made two batches of German pills, one with what I believe is the Hockers step mash schedule that starts at 145, then goes up to 158, and then up to a, a mash out at 168. And I did that, and then I did another one with just a straight 148 infusion for 90 minutes. And again, this is not the first time I tried this. I do this several times a year. And as usual, my results were that I just could not tell any difference in these beers. Uh, the OG came out within a point or two of each other. Some people say that they get better extraction doing a step mash. Maybe. I haven't found that to be necessarily the case. The finished beer certainly doesn't show enough differences to uh, to make me think that I'm getting anything beneficial out of the step mash. Now, I know that there are a lot of people who are going to disagree with me on this, and feel free to do it, and you certainly can. But for me, the only time I do a step mash is to see if I've changed my mind about the effectiveness of it. And so far, your mind has been saying, wait, who are you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, I just have not found a reason to do it. And, you know, it's easy to do on the grandfather. If I found a reason to do it, I certainly could. But, you know, I just can't see that it's making any difference in the beer that that makes the beer improved over not doing it. Right. And I think it's important to note that I mean, part of this is just because we have different malts now that have been engineered differently that, you know, I, mean, I usually joke around and say, if you sneeze at, at a malt, it it will convert. <laughs> right. Um, and so I, I agree. I think this day and age, at least with modern ingredients, I don't think step mashes are as anywhere near as important as they used to be, right? Because that always used to be about, oh, you got to do a protein rest to sort of break down some of your protein because the malt back in the day had more protein. There, there are reasons to do these steps, and I don't think they're as important anymore. So having said that, I think unless you are trying to use something that is like, say, a deliberately throwback ingredient, like, say, an undermodified malt, in that case, yes, a step mash might be a thing that you want to do. But with today's fully modified malts, uh, I would, uh, I just don't usually see the point, even though I have a very beloved Saison schedule that I brought back from Belgium that is three or four steps and various rests, and I love it. But even with the grandfather, I'm not necessarily certain I want to take the time to do it. Yeah, and let's keep in mind, too, that the malt that they're using in Belgium is very different than the malt that we're using here. Um, and you mentioned under-modified malt. Man, it is really, really difficult to find under-modified malt. Uh, when I say that, people often point me to the Wireman floor-malted Bohemian Pilsner. But as far as I can discover, that isn't under-modified either. So, you know, if if some of you guys know of something that is genuinely under-modified and made for a step mash, please let us know so that I can stop saying I don't know of any. Mechagrade Gateway. No. If you look at the diastatic power on Mechagrade Gateway, it's way up there. Uh, well, I know, but know, they, I, they're, they're, they're billing it as an under-modified malt. 
I, I know they're building it as an under-modified malt, and as much as I love Seth, I have to say that the numbers don't make it look like an under-modified malt. Uh, maybe it's under-modified compared to some of the others, but it has plenty of diastatic power so that I would not consider it under-modified. Let's have Drew answer this one. It comes from, uh, and of course, he's going to make me read this because it comes from a guy in Denmark whose name I couldn't pronounce if my life depended on it. So we'll just say Jens Henrik <laughs> Vogelius. There we go. Close enough, Jens. I apologize for messing up your name. Okay, he says, I've been curious about Party Gal for a while now, and not too long ago, I first heard of reiterated mashing. I actually think it might have been you mentioning it on the podcast. Having just heard the episodes you did on both Experimental Brew 73 and Brew Files 41, I thought, why not combine the two? I don't seem to recall Jim, apologies if I misremember the name, mentioned sparging his reiterated Imperial Stout, and his recipe doesn't mention it either. I'm also not really sure how you'd actually do it. What I'm specifically thinking of doing is reiterated mashing for a first runnings beer and batch sparging the grain once pulled out for a second runnings batch. Any thoughts on whether this would actually work? I started out doing brew in a bag and still use my bag for filtering, so moving the grain around shouldn't be an issue. Also, I looked at your notes on calculating party guile gravities. I had a hard time getting an overview of them in the show notes, so I did a write-up of them in latex. Yes, I could have used pen and paper, but that wouldn't be very nerdy now, would it? I, I just assumed he was wearing latex, but I no, also ended- no, no. Uh, of all, just to give listeners some context, if you're not uh, a super nerd, latex is almost basically a programming language to do word processing, and it's it's really what it, it it's really really good for is writing out math equations. Oh, okay, 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 great. So he wasn't like being kinky and wearing latex or anything like that. Not that there would be a problem with that. <laughs> That's right. I also ended up including an example. Would you mind running through the numbers to make sure I've got it right? The math seems solid, but the second running's OG seems higher than I'd expected. Lastly, the recipe for the big beer I'm planning has fermentables added to the boil. I assume I'd need to calculate the OG without those for use in this party guile equation. Okay, man, uh, you got a lot to deal with there. Yeah, let me take a brief stretch here. Ugh. All right. Um, yes, yes, and yes. Okay, and moving on. <laughs> so... All right. Yes, I do think the 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 idea of doing a first runnings beer and then doing a batch sparge with the the remaining grains would actually be okay. Um, and again, I mean that's you're kind of just doing a super complicated party Kyle. Um, yeah, so, exactly. So I think that's I think that's perfectly fine there. Um, I I do like to warn people that um, so Andy did one of the episodes where we talked about reiterated mashing. Uh, when he was down at Yorkshire Square, and it's it is a very involved process that I'm not always entirely certain is worth the time and the effort. But in this particular case, you're using it to still get two beers out at the end of the day, so I think that's a good thing. Uh, looking through your calculations in latex, and yeah, I'll share a a view on this. I didn't spot anything immediately. That doesn't mean that they're absolutely right, but the, at least at first glance, they do look right. So yes, and then the 
for, uh, the big beer having the fermentables added to the boil, assuming that I need to calculate the OG without those in the party equations? Yes. Obviously, yeah. All right. Good job, See, man. You got the I, whole thing. Well, I had it in four words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, but he wrote a long letter, so he deserves a long <laughs> answer, right? Absolutely. And uh, thank you, Jens, for the uh, for the question. I, I will go and I will double-check the uh, the latex equations uh, again just to make sure. But I... Like I said, at first glance, they looked right to me. So, uh, And thank you for reminding me of having to lay out math equations for my bachelor's thesis. <laughs> All right. And now it's time for another break because we're going to get into some process questions. Great. So stick around. And when we come back, we're going to see just how deep we can get ourselves into hot water. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome back, and now it is time for your process questions. What makes a process a process? Well, it's a thing that we do that doesn't fit into other categories. So, first question. <laughs> first question comes from Dan Chisholm, who emailed us to ask, I have two questions for you guys. I recently read an article from Brewlosophy on how sodium metabisulfite slash Campton can help prevent staling due to oxygen exposure on the cold side. Simply add 0.3 grams to the beer when kegging. First, do you guys do this? And second, would this also work for bottle conditioning beer? Thanks in advance. Denny? Okay. No, I don't do it for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, from the meager bits of knowledge I have on uh, low oxygen brewing, uh, I've been told that you pretty much need to do the whole process in order for any of it to work. And that would mean deoxygenating your mash water and taking all the steps through and simply adding the uh, sodium metabisulfite at the end. Theoretically, again, according to what I know, and that's probably not enough, uh, that would not prevent the other staling reactions that had already taken place. The other thing is that uh, in discussions I've been in with people who have tried this, they found that it really affected the flavor of the beer in a negative way to add it uh, post-fermentation or even post-boil. So that's pretty much all I can tell you. I have no personal experience with this. I have looked into it from a number of different angles. Uh, 
to the second question, I can't see how it would affect anything for bottle conditioning. Can you? Well, I'd be worried about what it would do to the yeast. After all, sodium metabisulfite is used in winemaking to stun wild bacteria or wild yeast. So uh, I'd be I'd be concerned. I mean, again, I mean, the pH of the beer probably isn't going to be low enough to, to free up enough uh, uh, sulfite to do that or SO4. But at the same time, I'd just be a little worried. Well, but you know what? When people talk about wanting to kill off the yeast in beer so they can add fruit or something like that, we always tell them that Campton alone isn't going to do it and they no. have to use sorbate. So I don't think I would be too worried about the yeast in that regard. I'd be more worried about the flavor impacts and... uh I just don't know about the effectiveness. Uh, as much as I admire what Brewlosophy does in terms of trying to test things out and get info out, let's keep in mind that whether they do it or whether we do it, it is a data point and not a conclusion. So their data point is that on their trial, it didn't seem to add anything bad to the beer and that it worked. The only data point that really matters is the one that you come up with. So, Dan, I would say try it and see what you think. Uh, but, yeah. again, this would be a good one for, like, a, a blind triangle test. So maybe split the beer and add the uh, the metabisulfite to uh, one part and not the other, and then uh, you'll be able to compare the two and find out uh, exactly how it worked for you. There you go. Yeah, and, and for me, I'm also, given that I'm asthmatic, and sulfites and asthmatics do not go well together, I haven't done that either. The thing that we have both played around with is, of course, uh, Brutan B, which is doing something slightly different. Not the same mechanism that sodium metabisulfite is doing, but uh, also with kind of the same goal of giving yourself some longer life. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that I would be more inclined to go that way. So, Next question comes from Josh Gutzmer via email. He says, I'm trying my hand at the Crew Crumbs beer in episode 44. I have three gallons of beer in primary fermentation. I want to try circulating over the pecans cocoa nibs. Would it work to simply pump out the bottom and return to the top? Do I need to worry about exposure to oxygen? If so, should I pump CO2 in when I start? So, okay, this goes, Josh's question goes back to the fact that in the Cruise Comes episode of the Brew Files, so that was episode 44 of the Brew Files, uh, it, the guys were talking about in order to maximize their extraction, they were doing a recirculation with a, essentially a little peristaltic pump, right? Uh, so no, no no contact between the the pump parts and the the beer itself, and using that to sort of return the the, the liquid and keep it moving. Um, I thought that was a really interesting idea. However, I naturally have concerns anytime that you're moving fermenting stuff, uh, and particularly when you're you're moving stuff that, or in this case, even not stuff that's fermenting, but stuff that you're trying to age. I, uh, I always have concerns about it because as homebrewers we have lousy oxygen practices to begin with, and I don't think just mixing in CO2 is going to be enough protection to to potentially undo any damage. Now, of course, with something like Cruise Crumbs, uh, there is so much dark malt in there and so many flavors in there that I'm not sure you could detect oxidation unless it decided to smack you upside the head like a baseball bat. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you're going to do it, make sure you're doing it with a very gentle pump, ideally with something like a peristaltic pump so that you, you never have pump parts in contact with anything. 
And then, yeah, a little CO2 is not going to hurt. Or, again, I'm not entirely certain that that process is really going to add a lot as much as it is very interesting to do. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Uh, it, it could just be one of those things that they do because they can, and it's hard to say if it really uh, does anything. I certainly would not try it without a peristaltic pump, and I would flush the entire system with CO2 as much as possible before doing it. Uh, remember, though, that's going to be difficult to do because gases mix, and so it's going to be hard to get all the oxygen out and make it just pure CO2. Yeah, but it's better than doing nothing. So it, <laughs> it, it is interesting. And by the way, I mean, that, that cruise crumbs beer, I will tell you, I mean, it, the part, the, the samples that I had of it were good. But like many of these uh, pastry stouts that are out there, it's it's hard to drink a lot of it. So just keep that in mind while you're doing it. Right. All make, right. Make a one-gallon batch. And our next question comes from uh, Craig Van Aken in uh, Aloha, Oregon. Where is it? Where is Aloha? Uh, just outside of Portland. There we go. All right. And he emailed us to say, uh, I would like to brew 10 gallons of my Pilsner recipe that I absolutely love. My process is to hold temperature at 58 degrees for four days and then take it out of the fermentation chamber and let it free rise to 67, where it stays for 10 days. Works great with the Imperial Global yeast. My issue is that my fermentation chamber can only ferment a five-gallon batch. Would it be possible to ferment five gallons while keeping the other five gallons in a refrigerator until I pull the first five gallons out for the free rise, then pitch yeast, and put the second five gallons in the fermentation chamber? Denny. Well, I'd be a little worried that you can give it a try, Craig. Uh, just be prepared for if it doesn't work. Um, my concerns would be, number one, your sanitation would have to be absolutely flawless. Uh, number two, you would have to make sure that whatever you stored that wort in had absolutely no oxygen in it. Uh, this might be a, a good time to try uh, the no-chill method and fill that jerry can up to the very top and set it aside and let it just go on its own for a few days until you can get it into the fermenter. Yeah, yeah and, and that's and that's something that they do in Australia. We saw at Grain and Grape that they were hot packing cans for for sale to people. Yeah, right. You know, and so so that would if I guess if I was going to try it, that would be the only way I would try it, making sure that that uh, jerry can was full to the very brim, so that there was no oxygen in it. Fill it with boiling wort, so that you know that your sanitation is good. I think that I would just be inclined to brew another batch, but you know that's my solution. Uh, give it a try, Craig. Let us know how it works. Yeah, so other than the hot packing, which was actually going to be a suggestion of mine, my other question is, uh, if you have a refrigerator that can hold five gallons of beer, why aren't you just fermenting in there? Uh, it sounds like that's what he does, isn't it? Well, no. I mean, he's saying, uh, you know, his fermentation chamber can only ferment a five-gallon batch. He says, w would it be possible to ferment five gallons while keeping the other five gallons in the refrigerator? Right. Yeah, uh, that's true. Maybe it's his food fridge and he doesn't have room to actually ferment in it. But yeah, that's a that's a darn good question. If you can store the beer in it, why can't you ferment in it, Craig? Yeah. So there yeah, you go. Yeah. Two two, uh, two, uh, two possible solutions. <laughs> this one is on mild, so we'll give it to Drew, and it comes from Nate Keeley on Facebook. He says, I've been homebrewing English mild beer for a few years now. I've never heard of them being boiled for six hours. I just purchased Berlick Brewing's Mild Stallions Golden Mild from a local shop in McMinnville, Oregon, about an hour ago. 
Uh, I usually only buy Heater Allen beer since I'm so close. Heater Allen, in case you guys know, is an astounding lager-only brewery in McMinnville, Oregon. Some of the best lagers I've ever had anywhere. It seems like there are easier ways to brew this style than boiling for six hours. Maybe they're conserving grain or something. The beer is good, but nothing special. What do you think there, bud? Marketing BS. Yeah, it's exactly what I put it down to, too. No, I mean, I I get it. They're doing the six-hour boil because it's fun, and they're trying to do some concentration and maybe build up some additional longer-chain structures to give the beer some, uh, some more body. But the reality is marketing BS. I would think so, too. Uh, if you were trying to do that, I don't think it would take six hours to do it. Um, obviously, if you boil that long, you're going to be getting some Maillard reactions. And as a way to develop extra flavors, it might work because, let's face it, when you're making a mild or anything like it, one of the things I struggle with is getting a nice flavor out of it because when you reduce the amount of ingredients you're using but use the same amount of water, let's face it, you're going to be getting less flavor out of it. So maybe it's their way of trying to impart more flavor, uh, but I just cannot see that it's necessary. No, but at least it's fun. I mean, hell, I've done a 24-hour boil once just for fun. Yeah, I mean, I, did, I didn't do 24 hours. I went 14 hours once uh, for a, a Beard in the Well, and... I can't really say that it improved the beer greatly, but it gave me something to do while Paula was out of town for the weekend. Yes. Uh, to quote Johnny Dangerously, my sister did that to me once. Once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. And our last process question comes from our good buddy Bjorn Bjornson, who wrote in via Facebook. He gave us a couple of questions here. It says, uh, after we got a baby girl 16 months ago, my wife pointed out that I need to spend less time brewing. Okay, fair enough. I did what you guys wrote a book about. I simplified my brewing. First, I started with a shorter mash and boil times. Okay. Then I included no sparge and then no chill. Still, my wife thought a brew day was too long. I did away with all grain and started doing DME with a one-minute boil with no chill fermented with quike. Now my brew day is measured in minutes, and there is little equipment to clean and turn around as fast. But the method is somewhat limited in variation, I think. And I would like to do some all-grain brewing. So how do I get back to a more traditional all-grain brew day? Because now, a traditional five- to six-hour brew day is daunting. And then he's got a, a second cue here, which says, What steps do you take to limit oxygen and oxidation in your no-chill brews? I pre-boil my brewing water for 15 minutes when brewing with DME. I boil the DME for a maximum of one minute before I transfer via silicon tube to the bottom of my no-chill container which is my stainless steel 30-liter keg fermenter. All hot side hops are added to the no-chill container after the wort is transferred. I then purge the keg and leave it to cool with CO2 attached. What do you think, Dan? I'll take the first part. You can take the second part. Sure. I would say that, Bjorn, you're in a position of trading money for time for all-grain brewing. Uh that's about the best I can I can tell you. Uh, you can certainly do a small brew-in-a-bag batch with a 20-minute mash, 20-minute boil, and get a three-gallon all-grain batch whipped out in 
probably no more than a couple hours. If you want to go a little bit bigger than, you know, something like the Grainfather, there are a lot of these all-in-one electric brewing systems out there right now. They require minimal time and effort on your part. You set it up, you let it do its thing, you come back when it's done, uh, and, you know, you sparge it, and you come back when it's done boiling again and chill it down and put it in your fermenter. It's not going to get you down to an hour-long brew day, but it's going to make it so that you can uh, crank out five gallons of beer in maybe four hours or so, and only maybe an hour of that being active time. So, you know, that's that's one thing that uh, seems to always work, is if you can uh, buy your time back with uh, with spending money on another brewing system. Now, I'm going to let you take the next one about no chill because you've done a lot more of those than I have. Yeah, and so truthfully, Bjorn, uh, when I'm doing the the no chill, the only thing I do to limit oxygen is when I go and fill the cube, yes, I try and put the, the hose all the way down at the bottom of the cube. But then when the cube is full, I try and make sure that if there is, perchance, any extra headspace in there, like any extra room, when I go to put the caps on, I make sure to squeeze the sides of the, uh, the the cube so that the beer liquid comes all the way to the very tippy top, right? And then screw on the cap and then let that happen. That way there's no or minimal amount of oxygen while everything's cooling down and shrinking. Uh, now, you, on the other hand, you are in a stainless steel container, which is uh, interesting. Uh, and with doing the, doing the DME, yeah, sure, okay, I can understand doing the, the pre-boil. Um, I'd have to go double check the math to make sure 15 minutes is actually long enough to drive off enough oxygen. I'm not having to deal with that because of course I'm doing all grain and doing a full, a full brew run. Um, yeah, I think that, I, I think the fact that you're in a keg doing the purge is a good idea. And I also like the idea of leaving it, leaving it to cool with CO2 so you're not sucking anything in. So all told, I think what you're doing for the situation that you're talking about is actually pretty good. Yeah, it, it seems like it ought to work. So the question now is, does it work for you? Because we can't come up with anything better to do right off the top of our heads. And this is also now a plea to the audience. Can you think of something better for Bjorn to do? Let us know. Let Pod- Bjorn know. Yeah, let, so- let, uh, let us know, and we'll let Bjorn know. How's that? Yeah, yeah there you go. Send us an email at podcast com. Ta-da! Okay, time for another break now, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about water, so stick around. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. Hey, 
normally this would be the time when I quote to you the rhyme of the ancient mariner, but let's not do that old saw. Water, it's important. It's 95% of your beer. Maybe 90. Maybe 80. <laughs> if you're the kind of person who dry malts their beer, yeah. Yep. So let's get into some water questions. And our first water question comes from Brandon Herr, who emailed us to ask, what is the effect of alkalinity on something like an ESB or mild? What does it actually contribute to any beer? The second one is the most interesting because when I make my favorite British beer, Boddington's, I try and get close, but I've been using the RO water and getting alkalinity back from RO is hard. I have slicked lime, but do I really need it? Or do I just need to get the balance of chloride and calcium right? Dincenzo? Well, what does alkalinity contribute to a beer? Problems. <laughs> um, Alkalinity is a measure of the buffering capacity of a solution and its ability to neutralize acid and resist pH change. The higher the alkalinity, the more it will resist pH change. That's not necessarily a good thing. Uh, you want to be able to adjust the pH of your beer. So theoretically, the lower the alkalinity you have, the better off that you are. Uh, if you have too much alkalinity, it can uh, cause your wort and beer pH to be higher than desired and suffer, your flavor will suffer uh, because it will create uh, dull flavors, uh, harsh bitterness, and, and a darker color. Uh, when alkalinity is too low, the wort and beer pH can be too low and it can reduce your beer body and affect your beer flavor, actually kind of giving it like a, a whiny flavor if your alkalinity is too low. So even when you brew with very low alkalinity water, the wort is typically buffered by compounds and grist to produce a wort pH in the mid to low five range. You need to avoid over-acidifying your wort. Uh, and I guess that's the one place that uh, alkalinity might be helpful is because it would uh, make the higher alkalinity would make the, uh, the wort more resistant to any pH changes. But, you know, all of a, that is to say that I wouldn't worry about the alkalinity per se. Just deal with your pH, and that's the only way that alkalinity plays into it at all. Well, now I just feel very limey. <laughs> oh, no, because it's a, an ESB? Well, and slicked lime. Um, yeah, right. I, I, look, I make terrible jokes, but no, I, I, it, it is interesting because I don't think I've ever – uh, ever overly worried about the alkalinity, except for how it affected my pH. Um, well, that's the only thing that you have to worry about in terms of alkalinity. You don't need it in there for beer flavor. Right. And so, yeah, just just worry about getting your pH correct, and you'll be good. This next question about water comes from Bill Ranta via Facebook, and he says, I know you use the grandfather, as do I. I also use Beersmith as my software, which all my recipes are in. I've always had problems with water volumes being correct in Beersmith with the Grainfather. This presents a problem in using the water adjustments calculator, which I like in Beersmith. What would be your suggestion in solving this? Yeah, so for me, it's been a while since I've regularly used uh, Beersmith because I've been doing a lot of um, a lot of work with Brewers Friends. But I I could have sworn, if I remember correctly, that there was a Grainfather equipment profile in Beersmith, that would allow you to sort of dial in to do your water water usage correct, right? And get that uh, that volume piece to do. The thing I tend to do is I tend to 
use Brewer's Friend to do my recipe calculations, and then I'll create a recipe in Grandfather so, just so I can have all the appropriate volume calculations done there, and then I'll take my notes back over to Brewer's Friends. Uh, I also I don't use anybody else's water profile calculator except for brewing water. So I'm, I've got like a three-way entry system going. Is it the world's most efficient? Nope. But it gets me what I trust. The other thing I will also tell you is that when you look at some of these other programs, if you don't have the water volumes dialed in correctly there, part of the problem with using their water profile calculators is then the, the amounts it tells you will be wrong. So what I tend to do is I'll go into Brewer's Friend and I'll take the amounts that I've calculated out of, uh, out of brewing water and I'll make sure that those go in there. And then I'll also make sure I know exactly how many grams or milliliters I'm supposed to be adding per gallon. Right. Cause one of the other tricks is let's say grandfather comes back and tells you you need 2.5 gallons of sparge water. Well, I'm no dummy. I like to have extra hot water on hand. So if I make a sparge tank of four gallons, I need to make sure that I've got those four gallons properly treated. So uh, that's what I do. Is it, is it the world's easiest, most continuous system? Nope, but it works for me. Yeah, uh, like Drew, I don't use Beersmith either. I uh, have been using another program called ProMash for over 20 years, and I know it so well, I just couldn't see any point to uh, using Beersmith. What I will tell you, though, is that when I try to outsmart the grandfather calculator in terms of uh, doing my own water volumes and thinking that I knew what was right, I was having very, very poor luck. So now I do all my uh, recipe calculation and water volumes in the Grandfather uh, online app. Uh, it works great. It comes out exactly right every time. And like Drew, I use Brune Water to uh, do all my water adjustment calculations. Uh, I have not used the Beersmith calculator, but I know that people who have used both Beersmith and Bruin Water tell me that the Bruin Water calculator is much more accurate, especially for darker beers, and the Beersmith often has you adding too much acid. <laughs> sorry, Brad. Uh, sorry, all you guys who helped on Beersmith, but that's just the experience that people are having. Uh, maybe, maybe that has been corrected now. I don't know, but I would advise you, Bill, number one, to get at least your water volumes from the Grandfather app and maybe try using uh, Brune Water instead of the Beersmith water calculator and see what you think. Yeah. And sometimes for me, like if I'm lazy about, I mean, look, let's face it. The important part for the Grandfather to know is the number of pounds of grain you have and your hop timings, right? So that you can do, you know, it can appropriately warn you, like, hey, you know, make sure you you throw in your thirty minute hops or whatever. So sometimes, if I'm feeling particularly lazy, I don't even bother making a full complete recipe in Grandfather. Like, I don't tell it's like, you know, hey, this is twelve pounds of, of Pilsner malt and two pounds of Munich and da 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 da. I'll just say, oh, I've got fourteen pounds of malt, donk, <laughs> you know, um, and and I, I need an ounce of hops at sixty minutes and an ounce of hops at ten, you know. And I'll just do that and have like a placeholder just to drive the the, the mechanics of the system. Got it. <laughs> yep. There you go, Bill. Uh, you know, I, I'm sorry that we can't really give you the answer that you wanted in terms of how you wanted to do it, but uh, there's an alternative you can try. Yeah, definitely though. Check check because Beersmith, I could have sworn has a grandfather equipment profile. It may be one of the add-ons. 
So go and look at the add-ons and, and see if that's there. And if I remember correctly, that does pretty well. Or, or check with the Grandfather Users Group on Facebook, because I'm sure somebody there will have one. Our next question comes from Bernard LaBelle in Los Angeles via email. And to kind of summarize Bernard's question, he attempted to dissolve chalk into a water solution via adding CO2 pressure and shaking. He was shocked at the fact that the water he was working with heated up while shaking. Is this because of the process? Dr. Drew. Bernard's actually uh, the president of the Maltose Falcons. So he, he asked me this question. And my immediate reaction was, well, it's got to be something to, to do with an interaction between carbonic acid and the, the chalk, right? It's got to be exothermic in some way. And so rather than just taking my, my, my assumption there, I actually went and I talked to Martin Brungard and I asked him and he said, well, uh, that's a neutralization reaction between the calcium carbonate and the carbonic acid. Yes, I was right. Um, so it would be exothermic. Uh, but that is because we've greatly altered the pressure. At atmospheric pressure, this reaction is so slow that it's not notable if any heat is produced. I'm pretty sure that adding chalk to an open vessel of water would not produce any notable heat. But in this pressurized scenario, the reaction is driven forward more aggressively. Another contributor to the perception of the heating is the pressurization of the vessel and its heat-concentrating effect. So I'm not surprised that the vessel felt hotter during this experiment. I've tried the experiment in the past, but I didn't notice a temperature increase, nor did I monitor the temperature. So... Also, in the in the eyes of completeness, I went and did this experiment. I well, went it's the to, only decent thing to do, right? Right. And so I actually went and I grabbed a uh, an empty two-liter bottle. I uh, filled it about a third of the way full of uh, distilled water. I added calcium carbonate to it. And then I pressurized it under about 15, 20 pounds of CO2 and shook the ever-living bejesus out of it for about 10 minutes. Uh, note, I did not get all the chalk to dissolve. Hmm. Yeah, um, well, and that's why you shouldn't be using chalk in brewing. Yeah, use lake lime instead. Um, but what I did notice, and this this was actually what surprised me, was in that one liter of wa- distilled water with, I think, 10 grams of calcium carbonate, which I know is an absurd amount. After shaking for 10 minutes, measuring the temperature, the temperature had risen by 10 degrees. Woo! So it, it kind of it kind of interesting to see that there was enough of a reaction there that it actually did produce a 10-degree difference. So... Kind of cool, and I'm glad that my initial my initial supposition was correct, and I'm glad that Martin could give you more detail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Thank goodness for Martin. He's a, a great guy, always willing to answer questions uh, from yeah, us yeah. and anybody, actually. Yeah, and by the way, just consider that reason number 200 to use slaked lime instead of calcium carbonate. Uh, it, it won't burst into flame. And you don't have to sit there and try and shake for 10 minutes. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah that too. Alrighty, one last break here, and when we come back, we're going to be talking yeast, so please stick around. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com, and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. It's just about time, it's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings, beer, 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 beer. And now, beer, beer, 
it's time for us to talk about the fungus among us. That's right, our little buddies, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and all of its other little critter pals. And our very first question comes from Mike Humphreys. Uh, this was actually the second part of his question that I was asking earlier. Uh, remember, Mike lives in Houston, and he emailed us, and he's asking about your old stoner. And he says here, looking at the old stoner barley wine recipe in Simple Homebrewing, a fantastic book, by the way. Yes, we agree, Mike. Thank you. Uh, there are three yeast choices. Two of the choices are Cali Ale yeast, and the third is a lager yeast. How much of a difference would there be in the final product with the different yeasts? Would you permit all three yeasts in the same temperature range of 65 to 68? Yes, as a matter of fact, I would. Um, the yeasts are all reasonably neutral, and with a beer like Old Stoner that uh, has a ton of malt and alcohol and especially a ton of hops in it, I don't think you would notice a lot of difference. Um you know, the, the three yeast choices in the book are BRY97, US05, and then 3470, which is the lager yeast. Uh, it works at ale temps and stays very clean. So you could use any of those at the, uh, at the temperature range you mentioned of 65 to 68 and you would be fine. My preferences though, if you want to use a liquid yeast and not a dry, are, uh, Y yeast 1450, 1272 and 1056. When my friends Kevin and Ken and I first devised this recipe and uh, decided we were going to make it, what we would do is make a 10-gallon batch, ferment 5 gallons of it with 1272, 5 gallons of it with uh, 1056, blend them before bottling. Uh, that worked out really well. I can't say it was necessary, but, you know, it, it made a good beer. Uh, in the intervening years since I discovered uh, what became 1450, we started using that in place of the 1272 and blending a 1450 and 1056 batch. But bottom line to answer your question is that if you use the BRY97, the USO5, or the 3470, yes, ferment them around 65 degrees and you'll get very similar results out of all of them. You know, I couldn't have been the only person who just had one of those great Karnak uh, or, <laughs> moments. Uh, Karnak the Magnificent, where I, holding the envelope in my head, when you started to talk about liquid yeast, I went, 1450, 1450, and there it was. I have, <laughs> I, I have, I have developed mental powers, people. Drew, Drew knows when I start talking about yeast for an American type of beer, that 1450 is going to work its way in there somehow. Somehow, uh, some way. There's there's a reason it's called Denny's Favorite. Uh, you know what? And now that 1217 is out, the West Coast IPA yeast, that might work really well for a barley wine also. There you go. It would be interesting to try. And, of course, uh, next episode we'll be talking about my latest dumb barley wine adventure. So, <laughs> next question. Next one comes from Fred Johnson in Apex, North Carolina via email. Fred says, for years, I've been keeping a bank of several yeasts on slants at 34 degrees Fahrenheit. Whenever I want to brew, I take a loop of yeast from the slant and grow it up to pitching levels. Every six months, I replace each slant onto a plate and pick one or two colonies from the plate to create a new slant. I'm being reminded here why I gave up yeast ranching. Mm -hmm. One can do this virtually indefinitely, but I suspect there comes a time where the yeast will no longer perform as they did when they were first purchased. This could come from a variety of causes, including genetic drift of the population. My question is, 
What are the typical signs that the yeast need to be discarded and a fresh batch started? Would this include poor attenuation, poor flocculation, which is difficult to determine with a yeast strain that is naturally low flocculating, or microscopic appearance? What else should I be looking for? You should be looking for a place that just sells yeast so you can go buy it, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I I did yeast ranching for a little while, and boy, that's more work than four chihuahuas and two cats. Yeah, man, there was a reason that why yeast ended up with 1450, and it's because I didn't want to keep it going anymore. Yeah, and so, actually, a good segue there, because the woman who isolated 1450, or what became 1450 eventually, uh, M.B. Rains, who is my go-to on microbiology, microbiology uh, she is uh, she is the yeast queen, and so I asked her because I'd rather get you a real answer. And she said, "Well, hey, you know, there's this article I wrote a while back. Here's an excerpt about it. And and by the way, spoiler warning: most of what you're going to be looking for is your uh, performance, your attenuation performance. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and dusty flocculation. That's the other thing that I learned as a sign. Yeah." So MB's uh, comment with, from her excerpt article, she said, okay, so how do people actually do this? Uh, master stocks. And she said, in general, it's a good idea to keep two stock preparations of yeast, one of which is referred to as a working stock and the other a master stock. The working stock is for routine use, such as the initiation of yeast propagation. The master stock is used to preserve the integrity of the original yeast strain. It is only used to replace the working stock or to propagate new master stocks. New master stocks are prepared when viability of the current master stock may be diminished. When this needs to be done depends upon the yeast strain and the method of storage. Uh, liquid media. This is a common method of storage for homebrewers and also has been referred to as yeast ranching or parallel yeast culturing. The best media for this method is wort or wort-containing media. Yeast is inoculated into 10-20 milliliters of media and grown until it reaches the stationary phase of growth, approximately three days, and then stored in the refrigerator as cold as possible, 40 degrees. That means don't keep it on the door. Stocks should be made in duplicate, one to use for brewing, the other as a stock. Some homebrewers prefer to build the 10 milliliter culture up into a larger volume and then dispense it into 12-ounce bottles. By the way, you're seeing people do this now still with how they do yeast starter splits. Um, storage in culture tubes or small jars also works fine. If stored properly, these cultures are stable for up to six months and then must be recultured, uh, preferably from the untouched master stock. There are reports that storage in 10% sucrose after growth in wort can increase the shelf life of yeast to as long as two years. In this case, it seems to be necessary to remove all residual nutrients or wort since direct addition of sucrose to the stationary yeast leads to continued fermentation, even at 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Once again, people, yeast will ferment at refrigerator temperatures. Other bonafide non-fermentable sugars such as lactose or glycerol may be more suitable but have yet to be tested for improving yeast shelf life. Yeast strains vary in their sensitivity to storage and liquid wort. In general, only a small percentage of the cells survive storage. Therefore, it may be necessary to store in volumes larger than 10 milliliters, especially if longer storage per periods are used. Uh, culturing in wort has been extensively characterized by the National Collection of Yeast Cultures. They have cultured yeast for periods of up to 60 years and found that mutation rate can be high. Of 600 strains studied, as many as 50% with specific nutritional markers had lost at least some of their specific markers after culturing for 10 to 25 years, and that's after about 20 to 50 passages. This was for all types of yeast strains, including brewing yeast. 10% of the 300 brewing strains tested showed changes in flocculation behavior after 10 years or 20 passages. Thus, storage in liquid media is feasible, but it is not the method of choice for long-term storage, since it can undergo considerable genetic drift from the original stock. It is not clear whether minimizing the number of patches will also reduce the overall mutation rate. 
Uh, so in other words, look for your fermentation performance and guess what? Yes, you're going to have drift, but there are easy ways to do it. I will include this as certain in our show notes because <laughs> yeah, man, uh, I don't know if anybody is still awake after that. And boy, you sped through that. Hey, I'm a, I'm a former high school debater, man. I know how to talk fast. <laughs> you too, man. I didn't realize that. Oh yeah. Here, somebody give me a briefcase full of notes. Um, oh man. But yeah, so the, the, the long, uh, the, the thing is, is that, I mean, what MB is talking about there is for most homebrewers, it's probably going to be best. Yeah. You know, I mean, cause look, plates are fun, but plates are also a pain to maintain. Like I said, it's more work than four chihuahuas and two cats. Ask me how I know. So really, if you're going to be doing this sort of uh, culturing and your concern isn't necessarily about keeping it forever and ever, but to keep it so that you can keep working with it. The idea of doing a master stock is actually probably going to be more feasible at the homebrew level than doing endless amounts of uh, plate uses. Okay. <laughs> All right. Our next question comes from our good, good friend, Paul Nicodem in Sydney, Australia. He says, my questions to you both is what is your yeast storage solution? I have a yeast fridge dedicated to beakers full of reharvested yeast slurry and ball jars full of sour beer dregs and bugs. Plus, in there, I also put my new store-bought liquid and dry yeast. I find with sour beer yeast, it can last for years, but clean beer yeast needs special storage, and you can't hold on to it for long without putting it on a stir plate for a week or more to bring it back to health. I never store clean yeast in ball jars as mold creeps under the lids too easily. I find beakers with clean stoppers work best. Anyway, I'd love to hear your take on a yeast storage solution. So, Drew, what do you do, man? I talk to yeast companies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, truthfully, there's only one or two things I actually try to maintain. Uh, one of them is a special isolate that I got from the brewery from Phantom that I think is a key for making Phantom to taste like Phantom. Uh, that one, uh, that one I'll, I'll try and keep around, but even then I'm lousy at it. And again, I'm distracted and particularly during period times when I'm not doing a lot of brewing, I forget. And so, yeah, I'm bad at this. Uh, there are some things I wish I've held, uh, I'd held on to, but I haven't. Um, so, but when I do, I have a couple of really nice scientific beakers with good, appropriate screw-on lids, and all the stuff is autoclavable. So if I'm really worried, I toss them into my pressure canner for 15 minutes and let them go, and make sure that everything's all nice and sterile. Uh, but otherwise, for the most part, I, I try not to sweat it too much. And I don't really store yeast for a long term anymore. Uh, I know in the past you've heard me talk about how I used these uh, plastic half-gallon tubs to store yeast in. Well, all my plastic half-gallon tubs have finally disintegrated, so I'm back to using uh, canning jars uh, with the, the plastic reusable screw-on lids. And those work fine because I don't try and keep yeast for a long time. Uh, I may, you know, maybe two months outside, uh, but uh, once I have some yeast stored, I try to get around to using it uh, as soon as I can. Uh, and then I just buy new yeast or hit up some of our friends and say, send me something to try here that, you know, I want to check out. Um, so, you know, Paul, I would say that your solution is working for you and our solutions work for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and of course, yeah, folks should remember, I mean, like, so Paul's down in Sydney, so Australia, different conditions there in terms of, 
getting special cultures. So not as many opportunities for sort of all the wackiness that we can get from white yeast, white labs, bootleg biology, and all the rest. So it's perfectly understandable why why he's a little more focused on saving special strains. Yeah, I mean, the, they do have, uh, you know, white yeast and probably white available there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's probably more expensive than it is here. And we know Paul, he's a brewing fool, and he likes to have a lot of options around. Yes, he does. <laughs> All right, and our next question comes from Steve Hiller in Florida, and Steve's been uh, joining my Maltose Falcons Happy Hours recently. So hi, Steve. Um, he says, I'm about to build a starter from a yeast land. I normally would use a stir plate to step up to a one-liter starter. This seems like a dumb question, but how does the no-stir method work? Well, it works just by not stirring. <laughs> I, You know, I did this for years before I started using a stir plate, and I would uh, pull a little sample off a slant or maybe bottle dregs and put it into about 50 milliliters of 1020 wort, uh, let that ferment out, and then step it up a few times. And every time I was basically doing the, the SNS method, not using a stir plate. So I would say stick with whatever volumes you've been using for your step up and just don't use a stir plate, and there you go. There you go. And I, I will remind you that in the... Uh in the extract from uh, MB, uh, she says, uh, some uh, some home brewers prefer to build the culture in 10 millimeter jars. No, I'm not going to do that to you guys again. No. Um, but yeah, start uh, start small and just uh, just do shaking. So remember, I think the important clue about the shake and not stirred method is four-time vessel volume over the amount of wort that you're putting in there and use that as your starter, right? So yeah. uh, do you that. You want to get the fine. oxygen in there for uh, for yeast growth for sterile production, but you know, Steve, basically do what you're doing. Just don't use a stir plate and shake the crap out of it. Yep, exactly. And then uh, and yeah, so if you had like a, if you're trying to make a one liter starter, then I would go and I would start with you know a four liter vessel, right, uh, and do that in there, um, or really a gallon jug. Um, all right, next question comes from Niles Rattle who, in Stowe, Mass., who says, uh, one, what is your process for stepping up yeast eggs from a bottle? And without doing lab testing, when do you feel it ready to pitch to a five-gallon batch? Uh, I want to get into brewing, uh, number two, I want to get into brewing some longer aging average ABV sour beers, possibly using oak staves or cubes, and wondered where you think is a good place to start. And three, what are some of the best ways you found working, or sorry, three, what are the best ways you found work when trying to start a homebrew club? Uh, so, Denny, you want to tackle some of these, and I'll tackle some of them. Yeah, I'll I'll start with the first one for sure, uh, and it's basically like we just said to Steve: you start with a small amount of low gravity wort, uh, you know, someplace in the twenty to fifty milliliter range of ten twenty wort. Um, Step it up when you see that's fermented out. Step it up to maybe like a, a couple cups. And then uh, once that is uh, uh, fermented out, you can step it up to your normal uh, SNS starter. Uh, without doing lab testing, when do you feel it's ready to pitch into a five-gallon batch? This is this, this is an experience thing, man. Uh, you just I just kind of look at it and go, yeah. That looks like a healthy amount of yeast in there, and it's all fermented out, so uh, I'm going to pitch it. Yeah, and I think the important part is if when you're doing these initial steps, you're not trying to do like what like Denny's, for instance, is trying to do with the shake and not stirred starter method of 
hitting it so that you're you're doing the next step when it's at high corrosion, right? It's okay for these first initial step ups, and uh, each time I like to, I'm, I mean, I, I think what the the rule of thumb is doing like a ten time growth rate, right? So from fifty yeah, mil to five hundred, but I, I, I go I find lower that. that. I find, yeah, me too, man. I find that that's too big a step up uh, in terms of you know what you end up with. Yeah, I usually go two to three, four, uh, two to four times the size. Um, but it, what I would also do is that in between each of those steps, I would actually let the yeast completely finish fermenting before doing the step up and then do the high croissant bit when you're actually getting ready to pitch. Yeah, uh, that, and that's exactly what I've always done. I don't know if it's the right thing to do, but that's what I've done and it works. Mm-hmm. All right, and then Niall's second question was about getting into brewing some longer aging average ABV sour beers. And of course, I think the funny part is the average ABV is five to seven percent. <laughs> that's kind of big for a sour beer, man, um, or, or at least traditional sour beers. Um, using some oak staves and cubes, and I wondered where do you think is a good place to start? Uh, to me, okay, one on terms of the oak staves and whatnot. Uh, I actually still like using cubes because I think they're more practical. Uh, I also have mason jars full of cubes that are aging in various media like wine and bourbon and tequila, because why not? And they're all in mason jars in a bucket called Flavor Town, um, which you guys would have seen on my Facebook feed a couple weeks ago. Um, but I, I would say start simple and don't try. I mean, well, here you got a choice: either start simple and do like a nice golden beer with a nice Britannomyces, right? Find, uh, find uh, Britannomyces. One of the things that uh, mixed culture brewers are, they're kind of living in a renaissance time right now. If you, if you listen to the last episode with Dan uh, from Milk the Funk, we're living kind of a renaissance time for mixed culture beers, largely because you also now have not only a lot of knowledge being put out there, you also have a lot of new cultures available to you. Uh, so you can go to places like the Yeast Bay or Lake Biology or a number of other places out there and actually get some interesting cultures, you know, some things that aren't just, you know, say, Lactobacillus tuberculosis or Britannomyces bruxellanus. You can find other things out there. And so either find just a nice simple bread that, that you, that you want to play with and, like, look at the, the flavors of it and go. Or the other thing that you can do is also go, again, to, like, say, Bootleg, for instance, and yeast bay both have really nice mixed cultured starter cultures, you know, with some really interesting flavors. I would start with those as opposed to doing what some other people have advocated in the past of find a sour beer or mixed culture beer that you like and use the dregs from that, right? Because that's that's always going to be a little hit and miss as to what's going to grow up. Um, so go to uh, go to the yeast bay, go to Bootleg Biology, go uh, go get one of their mixed cultures. Uh, Maniacal yeast is another one that you can uh, that you can try to get your hands on. Yeah, and use use one of their blends as a good starter. And again, just do a normal, yeah, you know, five and a half, six percent pale golden beer. Maybe throw some oats or some wheat in there if you want. Yeah, I might be biased. And then use that mixed culture. And I would also do something interesting with the oak. Like I said, a lot of times with a mixed culture beer, I think doing oak aged on white wine is actually very interesting. And just put that in a mason jar and let it soak for a few weeks before you decide that decide to actually put it on the on the beer. So there you go. There's number two. And the third question from Niles is, what are the best ways you've found when trying to start a homebrew club? Well, we don't. neither one of us has any direct experience with this because both of our clubs have been around for many, many years. Uh, Drew's is, what, 40-something? Uh, 46, and it's easy for me to know because I'm the same age. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah. So Drew started the club just after he was born. Uh, my club is almost that old. So we've never started a club. And I would really recommend that you head over to the AHA discussion forum, homebrewersassociation.org slash forum, and ask there, because there are a lot of people in the club section of the forum who have started clubs and ask this question, and there have been some great, great suggestions there. So uh, I, I would really say check out the, uh, the AHA discussion forum for info on how to start a club. Yeah, and my other bits of advice, work through a local homebrew shop if you have one. If not, work through one of your local breweries because um, that's where you're going to find like-minded people who are going to want to do this. The other thing to do is focus on getting everybody engaged. So to me, like one of the biggest downfalls I see with a lot of homebrew clubs is like, you know, there's like one person who's hard charging, who really wants to make this thing happen and they do all the work. And then at some point in time, they get burned out and the club dies because they, they got burned out. So if you want people to feel involved, if you want people to be engaged and you want pe- the organization to last, make sure that if you're the one starting this club, that you are handing out jobs to people and you're getting people to actually be involved and do something. Get them some reason to actually feel like they have skin in the game and that the club is as much theirs as it is yours. So there you go. Good, good advice. Good advice, man. And our last yeast question comes from Liam Doherty in Manchester, UK. Liam says, I did my first yeast starter recently, and I couldn't find a suitable vessel to do it in, so I decided to use my fermentation keg, which is a 19-liter ball lock stainless keg. I left it at room temperature for 24 hours and then just dumped my fresh wort straight in there. The beer turned out great, so it's something I will do again, as it was super easy. The only niggle I have at the back of my mind is that I don't hear about many homebrewers using their fermentation vessel for yeast starters. Is there a good reason for this? I understand that some fermentation vessels may not be a suitable size for shaking, but for anyone using kegs and plastic buckets, it seems a no-brainer to me. Love the podcast. It's a great source of practical advice I feel I can trust, but I miss the ukulele. Had to get that in. Mm-hmm. I figured. That's why I left it in there. Uh, for me, Liam, uh, I don't really see a reason not to do it. I mean, if you're short on vessels, I mean, it's a fermentation vessel. A starter is a fermentation. I think some people get a little woogie about it in the sense that they want to be able to you know, do the, the whole decanting and getting rid of the starter wort and all that. But if you're doing something like the shake and not stirred method, where you're supposed to be trying to pitch at high poison, there's absolutely zero reason not to do it, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with you, man. I've done it a couple times in the past, and I know that there are quite a few people out there who are doing it. So, Liam, just let me say that just because you haven't heard of somebody doing it doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't. Sometimes it does, of course. <laughs> but, uh, y- yes, however, know. on the other hand, don't go trying to jump uh, the Snake River Canyon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, even on a jet-powered motorcycle. Uh, but, uh, you know, man, it, I would say that you answered your own question when you said the beer turned out great. What else do you need? You've proven it. You know, go for it, man, because that's all that it really takes. Absolutely. All right. And we have two last questions that were kind of just in the miscellaneous category because, well, miscellaneous. And our first one comes from our buddy Steve, uh, Steve Roosh, who uh, emailed us to say, Hey, Denny and Drew, why the heck is extract brewing looked down upon? I'm in a situation where I can't really do all grain, and I'm quite happy with my extract beers. 
Cheers. Well, there you go, Steve. Once again, the proof is in the glass of the beer holder. Um, you know, I think that the reason it gets looked down upon is because so many people start with extract and do maybe not to the extract, but to their lack of experience, the beers don't turn out stellar. Also, they don't know exactly which extract to buy. And a lot of times, uh, poor beer quality can be traced back to poor extract quality. So if you're using liquid extract, you want to buy it from a place that goes through a lot of it so that you know it's fresh because it can stale easily. Or use dry extract, which is my preference, because it really doesn't stale and it will keep from, for years. I've judged best of show rounds, maybe Drew has too, where an extract beer won best of show. Mm -hmm. So it's not the extract per se, it's the brewer. Get good extract, know what you're doing, and you can make great beer with it. And I know that's true of you because I've had your beers. Yeah, and again, I'll agree with Denny. I think some of it is that extract is uh, tainted by the notion of it's for beginners. Uh, The other thing I've also noticed is that it's, there's a very weird through line with a lot of homebrewers where certain things are looked upon as cheating and therefore not good, right? Because cheating's bad. Cheaters never win. And extract gets lumped into there. But I mean, at the same time, some of these things like the automated systems that we use, uh, they get looked down upon as cheating, right? Like, yeah. You know, and I, I always love there's kind of the, the smart butt remark that comes back about that where, uh, people will be like, well, yes, but, you know, I mean, look, you're not really brewing beer, you're cheating if you're not starting with a field of grain yourself and malting your own grain. <laughs> yeah, really, man. Yeah, um, it goes it goes to what, you, what you've said in the past where it's like, why are people so obsessed with this idea that the hobby is even better if you're working hard? Yeah, yeah. I mean, name me a brewery that tries to do things in the most difficult manner possible. You oh, know, don't I'm, do that. There's There's one yeah. of them out there somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure that there is. But yeah, if, you know, if you're really obsessed about it, then what you really need to do is uh, climb a mountain, capture some pure oxygen, uh, come up with some hydrogen someplace, and start making your own water too. There you go. And so yeah, that's why I think it's it's taint it's tainted by the fact that extract is used largely by beginners who don't really know what they're doing, and it's also tainted by this weird sort of cultural thing of, hey, that's cheating. So, hmm. all right. right. And on to our last question. This one comes from Don McNuffner in St. Louis. He says, and he's actually got a couple of questions in here. He says, what's the worst beer you ever made and why? Mine would be my first attempt at a Belgian Saison. It was probably the fifth or sixth beer I ever brewed before I really understood how to formulate a recipe that wasn't from a kit. Don't have the notes, but I'm pretty sure the bill was probably a whole lot of stale old LME and a pound or two of Crystal 60. And whatever random hops I had, I guess in Liberty, since I remember buying a few, them a few times when I started brewing. I also didn't know at the time that the DuPont strain was so touchy and required special care to ferment correctly, so I ended up with a final gravity of 1022 from an OG of 1050-ish. I threw a couple of packets of champagne yeast at it oh, to try and bring it down, but to no avail. I bottled anyways and ended up with insipid, wet, cardboard-flavored beer. The worst part that was being new to brewing, I was eager to share my abomination with anyone I could, and ended up serving that direct to unsuspecting friends who didn't deserve that kind of abuse. Several months later, <laughs> yeah, no, I love that line. I <laughs> know, man. This is, this is a realistic guy here. Yep. Several months later, I was woken up by loud popping sounds coming from my basement. I'm guessing the yeast finally decided to chow down on those remaining sugars, leaving a sticky mess of glass shards and broken bottles in my basement. I didn't attempt a Saison for years after that until I got better at brewing 
And when I did, I ended up naming it Dom's Revenge Cezanne. It turned out so much better. So, Denny, <laughs> what's the worst beer okay. you've ever made? Mine was uh, what came to be known as the Dastardly Dort. I decided I would brew a Dortmunder. I don't remember much about the recipe. I think it was fairly simple and straightforward. Uh, I used S23 yeast. Uh, I know some people have had good experiences with S23, but I am not one of them. This beer had such a weird fruity flavor to it uh, that even after six months of lagering, it still was not good at all. It was so strange and unidentifiable that I actually sent a bottle to John Palmer to get his opinion on it. And uh, John bravely tasted it and wrote back and said, you know what? This reminds me of a passion fruit wine cooler. (laughs) So, I mean, I let that beer finally lager for a year. I tried dry hopping it heavily to cover up the flavor and stuff. Nothing worked. That uh, five-gallon batch eventually went to uh, fertilize my front lawn. Hmm. Well, and mine's hands down. It's a beer I brewed in October of 2000. And it was my attempt to do a what uh, what I understood at the time was the idea behind a London porter from like the early 1800s, and so it was uh, it was that classic thirds beer, right? So third pale, third amber, and a third brown, and with a couple of extra things in there to just kind of bump up character. So it was basically it was what uh, ten and a half pounds of uh, Maris Otter, ten and a half pounds of amber malt from Belgium, uh, ten and a half pounds of uh, brown malt from Hugh Baird's. With a pound of Rausch malt to give it a little bit of smokiness. Oh my god! And a half a pound of black patent. When it turned out the beer wasn't dark enough, I will. All right. The Maris Otter was the only thing that had any sort of high enzyme content in there, and it wasn't enough to be able to do all the conversion. So it's the one time in my brewing career I've had to use uh, extra amylase enzyme and do the whole cool down in the mash and then run this thing for a longer period of time. The whole mash took like three hours. Um. And then we added the black patent into the as a sparge cap because it wasn't dark enough, and then the whole beer just it tasted it, it like sucked. Right? Go ahead, say it. Oh, I mean, it tasted like burnt wet toast, and it was just not good. It never got good. And finally, at one point, I said, "Screw it," and I added Brett to it. And I think, if I remember correctly, I used Bruxellinus. I don't remember. Um, but I used one of the Brett strains that was available at the time, again, it's 2000, so not a lot of choices, uh, just to try and see if maybe, like, Brett would do something to it. And I let that thing age for three years. And you know what? The Brett did actually help. It made it interesting, at least. But I hated that beer so much that finally I was just like, nope, out you go, poured that whole thing down the sink. Um, and, yeah, by far and away, easily the worst beer I've ever made in my entire life. And I'm including the ones that were infected. Yeah, man, I know. And mine, like, you know, this, the one that I made, the Dastardly Dort, was not like a beginning beer. I'd been brewing for, uh, you know, maybe four or five years at least when I, I made it. So, uh, but let's, let's really dwell on this point here for a second. Don't be afraid to dump beer. Life is too short to drink bad beer. I've heard people say that, ah, oh, this batch was terrible. I'm going to drink it, to teach myself a lesson. Don't do that to yourself, man. Get rid of it. Brew something good. Absolutely. All right. And then the second half of uh, Don's question was, 
Uh, do you ever think loggers will become a hip, sexy beer style? I feel like highly rated, highly talked about, and highly prized beers anymore have to be strong, dark, and or hoppy, and have imperial somewhere in the t- title. And don't forget also hazy. Um, but a well-made lager can be just as amazing in its own right. Sure, it might not have a shotgun blast of various hop flavors and aromas or the complex and sometimes muddled and overdone characteristics of being barrel-aged. That doesn't make it any less of a great beer. Does the simplicity and straightforwardness of a lager prevent it from being a darling of craft beer nerds? Or do you think it's possible for a lager to reach Plenty of the Elder or Dark Lord status? Well, when will lagers become a hip, sexy beer style? They already are. I would say that... People in the know in the beer world will take a lager as their first choice most of the time. I think that the beers that you're talking about there appeal to the maybe newer beer nerds, I guess I would say, who are always looking for something weird and out there. And I know for myself, after many years of weird and out there, what I am looking for is a simple perfectly made, straightforward beer. So I think that lagers have already achieved that uh, among a great portion of the beer community. And I think part of what, uh, part of what you got going on there is, yeah, it's, it's not that they're unhip and unsexy. It's just that so much of the modern craft beer world is driven by the new. You know, people trying to chase the next new thing, the next thing that they can tick, or the next thing they can collect. And, I mean, truthfully, I mean, you heard us talk earlier in the in the podcast about Heater Allen. I mean, Heater Allen makes fan-frickin-tastic lagers. <laughs> um, you know, when it, you know, Chuckanut, they make a great lager. Uh, from, uh, from family, they, they have uh, a Pilsner that I love. Oh, yeah, man. Um, and even down here in Los Angeles, I'm noticing more and more that every brewery where they used to have maybe like a blonde is now having some variety of lager. So... I think some of those beers have entered into that Holy Grail status for, you know, sort of, I don't want to say older beer nerds, but for for beer obsessives who are no longer trying to chase the new thing. Um, and again, just like what we were talking about with Heater Allen, for instance. But yeah, I, I think there's always going to be, at least the way that things have been built up in the American craft brew world, I think people are, are, are always going to be driven by this sort of ticker mentality of this is the new thing. And that's going to be hard. To, uh, that's hard to do with loggers in terms of getting people excited about it. But you know what? At the end of the day, it doesn't matter because there are some damn fine loggers being made, and breweries that are building a fantastic reputation based on those damn fine loggers. Yeah, man, I, I'm not out there always chasing the next new flavor like a lot of people. Like I said, what I want is a straight-ahead, well-made beer that's going to be satisfying and interesting to drink. Uh, so, you know, in my world, loggers are in high regard already. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I, I get what Dom's going for here because, it, I mean, it does look around. I mean, I don't see a line forming, you know, for people to go pick up four packs of lager, right, like they do for Hazy's or for a pastry stout or, or whatnot. Um, but at the same time, I think I'm at the point where I don't care. So would you say that maybe it's the more – educated and experienced beer drinkers who are going for the lagers and the newer flavor chasers who are going for the uh, the other beers i think that's part of it i mean because i mean just think about it like when we interview brewers 
How many how many of those brewers when we ask them what their favorite beer style is, it's inevitably some sort of lager. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you go into a brewery, and at the end of the day, when the brewer is done working, he's going to be sitting down with a lager more than likely. Yep. So there you go, Dom. Do I think do I think they'll ever reach uh, Dark Lord or Plenty of the Elder status? I think there are some that have. I don't think, however, that you'll ever see a lager hit hype level status, right? Yeah, I, think, I think that's the difference there. Yeah. So yes, America has great craft loggers that have entered the Hall of Fame. We've already mentioned a few of them, but I don't think we've ever seen a logger hit the Hype Hall of Fame, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> exactly. All right, I think we're done. 28 questions, 28 answers, some of them may be good. I guess it's time to get out of here now. So thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the uh, homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrew channel. I spend a lot of my time on the AHA discussion forum, uh, as well as uh, Bruce Brothers and a couple other places. So we're out there. You can find us. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail or shoot us a text at 626-765-1AL, 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.